Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 144, All Men Are Created Equal. Last time we looked at the Declaration of Independence, a massive moment in our narrative. After all, it is the moment that can be considered the birth of the United States. I can now stop referring to them as British colonies. I know, when we started this series, we were all expecting it to take less than 144 episodes for us to get to the United States existing, but I trust you enjoyed the journey anyway. Undeniably, declaring independence from Britain was a true break. The Rubicon had been crossed. There was no going back now. However the war went, there could be no sweeping differences of opinion under the rug. The resulting peace would need to be very different from the situation before Lexington and Concord. It also had a unifying effect. According to John Adams, church bells rang in Philadelphia to celebrate. News spread around the colonies. George Washington paraded his troops so they could hear the declaration read. Meanwhile, in the backwoods of South Carolina, the declaration was read out by a then nine-year-old Andrew Jackson. Obviously, we'll have a great deal more to say about him later. With independence now official, formal matters needed to be tied up. Congress, now officially the government of the American states, set about drafting Articles of Confederation. The states themselves started creating their own democratic constitutions. The theme was powerful state legislatures. Americans already showing a distaste for a strong executive branch. But the states weren't only concerned with government. Individual freedoms were important too. Bills of rights started to appear. Established churches started to have their privileges removed. The 1763 proclamation limiting settlement west of the Appalachians was thrown out. And then there was the elephant in the room. After issuing a declaration which literally stated, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The obvious question is how did slavery fit into all this? Over the 17th and 18th centuries, slavery had become an increasingly prominent feature of American life. Numbers are quite difficult in this period, but we can estimate that perhaps 2.5 million people lived in the American states at the time of independence, and that there were up to half a million enslaved peoples generally concentrated in the southern states. There were, though, free blacks, and these men fought for Patriot forces during the battles of Lexington and Concord, as well as the Battle of Bunker Hill and the assault on Fort Ticonderoga. Altogether, about 5,000 black soldiers would fight in the Revolutionary Army, a small but not insignificant number. In November 1775, Congress decided to stop blacks from being recruited into the Continental Army, 
as a way to appease southern plantation owners, who were uneasy about it. Although this decision was reversed, after the British promised freedom to slaves who served in their forces. As the revolutionary rhetoric grew stronger over these years, the disparity between American rhetoric and the American experience became more obvious. Abigail Adams wrote in 1774, It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me to fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. End quote. In 1773, Dr. Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia, one of the signatories on the Declaration of Independence, wrote, quote, The plant of liberty is of so tender a nature that it cannot thrive long in the neighbourhood of slavery. Remember, the eyes of Europe are fixed upon you to preserve an asylum for freedom in this country after the last pillars of it are fallen in every other quarter of the globe. End quote. Reverend John Allen of Massachusetts preached, quote, Blushy pretended voluntaries for freedom, ye trifling patriots, for while you are fasting, praying, non-importing, non-exporting, remonstrating, resolving, and pleading for a restoration of your charter rights, you at the same time are continue in this lawless, cruel, inhuman, and abominable practice of enslaving your fellow creatures. End quote. The irony of slaveholders fighting for their freedom amused British commentators, but the British were still heavily involved in the slave trade themselves. It would be decades before the abolitionist movement would really gain traction in Britain. Several of the more radical colonies took action. Puritan New England, Quaker, Pennsylvania and Delaware outlawed the slave trade, and in April 1776, Congress decreed that no slaves were to be imported. This was a significant moment, and liberal Americans hoped it was a sign of things to come. Alas, far more telling for the first century of American history was that slavery wasn't mentioned at all in the Declaration of Independence. While plantation owners like Thomas Jefferson would criticise the evils of slavery, that did not mean they intended to free their own slaves. Meanwhile, the war continued. While they had been unsuccessful in Canada, the American forces had managed to push the British out of Boston. The British set about undoing this in 1776. Their principal objective for 1776 was to regain control of New England. General Howe was to capture New York and Newport in Rhode Island, then push north and east with the assistance of Admiral Howe. Meanwhile, Carlton was to continue his successes in Canada by pushing southwards and capturing Fort Ticonderoga. The two British forces would be able to then unite and regain Boston. They hoped that with New England, the epicentre of the rebellion, pacified, it would be relatively easy to then march southwards. This plan was the obvious plan, and it was what the Patriot forces expected. 
Controlling New York would separate New England from the other colonies and connect the British with Canada. They must not be allowed to succeed. Washington began to prepare for the defence of New York, sending Charles Lee there. Manhattan was largely indefensible due to the power of the Royal Navy, but they did what they could. They established positions on the Brooklyn Heights, and cannon were placed on either side of the Hudson. Washington joined Lee in the spring and finished the job, ending up with command of 29,000, although this was only a paper number. Howe gathered his forces at New York Harbour and waited until he was joined by Hessian reinforcements. He didn't want to take any unnecessary risks. When he felt he had gathered enough strength, Howe landed his troops on Long Island at Gravesend Bay on August 22nd. The Americans stationed there had not adequately fortified their left wing, something not noticed by Washington when he inspected. The British made their plans and attacked on the 27th, having moved troops around the back of the Americans the night before. The American left immediately crumbled. Their right lasted longer, but ultimately fell back to the second line of defences. Howe might have attacked immediately and pushed the Americans off western Long Island, but he was risk-averse. Washington sent more troops over the East River from Manhattan to Long Island, but this was a risk as the Royal Navy could sail up the river and cut off their lines of retreat. Ultimately, Washington decided the risk was too great and abandoned Long Island, moving his men across on the evening of the 29th, a dark and stormy night. With the storm ongoing, it was not until late the next morning that the British realised what was happening, and by then it was too late to do anything. The Battle of Long Island, as the event is now known, was a British victory with over a thousand Americans captured and hundreds more wounded or killed. American morale was badly damaged, and a quick assault could have shattered their spirit. But yet again, how delayed, making noises about reaching a peace settlement. The Americans felt uneasy. Washington was blamed for the defeat on Long Island. He was clearly inexperienced. Some wanted Washington to wait for Charles Lee, who had been fighting in the South, to return with a force to save them, while others, such as General Nathaniel Greene, argued that this was dangerous, that New York should be abandoned and the city burned. The city was indefensible and shouldn't be left to the British. Congress wouldn't go this far, arguing that if the city were lost it would only be temporary. Washington ultimately decided to abandon New York City, but he would not burn it. And, as he wanted to delay the British for as long as possible, he would instead base himself at the northern end of Manhattan Island. But before the evacuation had finished, Howe finally took action. Luckily for the Patriots, Howe's attack was neither well-timed nor well-planned. It would have been sensible for Howe to attack quickly, and then to attack from the east and trap Washington against the Hudson. Instead, he waited for weeks, then finally, on September 15th, he moved from the southeast, landing at Kipps Bay and Turtle Bay. When they landed, they then moved slowly, and the Patriots fought their way out, allowing Washington to regroup at the Harlem Heights, 
where a few skirmishes were forced on the 16th. Yet again, how delayed, wasting a full 26 days more before moving against Washington. On October 12th, he moved and decided to finally attempt the plan of landing from the east, urgently suggested by Henry Clinton, but he landed at the wrong place. The British landed at Throng's Neck, which, while technically on the mainland, was a peninsula with only two routes off it, both of which were controlled by the Patriots. He was stuck for six days before he re-landed three miles further east at Pell's Point. This delay gave Washington time to be alerted and to plan what to do. He held a council of war on October 16th and ultimately decided to abandon Manhattan, aside from a fort on its northeastern side, Fort Washington. He would garrison most of his troops on the mainland at White Plains. They started crossing the Harlem River on October 18th, the same day that Howe re-landed at Pell's Point. Howe could have moved quickly and caught the Americans while they were moving, but as I'm sure you are expecting, Howe moved too slowly. He didn't reach White Plains until October 28th. By this point, Washington's army had reduced to about 14,500 troops, but his men were now well rested and had food and drink. They had performed well in the skirmishes, while escaping New York, and they were no longer trapped. Washington entrenched himself, and even sent an advanced detachment to slow down the British. A small battle was fought, in which the Americans were pushed off one hill, but they were not routed. General Howe did what he did best. Nothing. Then ordering an attack when it was too late. The British were able to attack on November 1st by which point the Americans had already moved to a secure position where they couldn't be outflanked. Howe then evaluated the British position. 1776 had not gone as the British wanted. Carlton was still north of Fort Ticonderoga and was unlikely to move into New England during the winter. Howe had managed to capture New York, but had not yet moved against Rhode Island, and Boston was secure. While he didn't entirely give up on the plan, Henry Clinton would be sent with a small force to capture Newport, Howe decided he would take advantage of his position, and instead of advancing east, he would move west. This is where we'll leave things for this week. Next time out, we'll follow Howe's westward invasion. But before I go, I want to talk to you about the Intelligence Speech 2021 conference. Intelligence Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's conference takes place on April 24th, 10am Eastern or 3pm London time. I, Jamie Redfern, will be appearing alongside David Crowther of the History of England, Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative History, and around 40 other great content creators. With 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams, there will be a lot of content to discover. Interact with your favourite show hosts and fellow fans in an immersive conference experience. Tickets are $30 and are available online at www.intelligencespeechconference.com forward slash shop. I will be speaking at the conference and will be talking about the 1979 Iranian Revolution 
and the origins therein. It's going to be a bit of a throwback to my old Arab Spring days, and we'll talk a bit about the history of Iran and um, the Shia religion and lots of other fun Middle Eastern things, which I'm looking forward to covering in this series eventually in about 100 years' time when I finally get to the 20th century. Um, So yes, if you want to not wait 100 years and you want to hear about that right away, you can get tickets online. It was a great event last year. I love being able to speak with listeners, um, being asked questions live, and it's just a really fun way to spend a day, actually. Um, So if you want to do that, uh, yeah, please do. And I'll hopefully see some of you then. Um, Otherwise, I'll see you next time out when we'll discuss the, uh, the British and American campaigns of late 1776. Thanks for listening. I will see you then.